0: see you looking forward to teaching and looking forward to preaching and looking forward to teaching tonight and being with friends this afternoon and uh, having a picnic with you next Sunday. That's an announcement that could be made. That uh, We go down to Elliott Park and eat eat together after church next Sunday afternoon. This is not just a two-part series, this is a three-part series because Noel, uh, the Sunday after I'm done... We'll talk about Jonathan Edwards' wife, who had a very significant role in the revivals of his day. Let me explain how I'm going to handle this time, these two weeks. Uh, What I'd like to do today is to uh, sort of biographically, from my standpoint, take you on my pilgrimage with Jonathan Edwards, and then talk a little bit about the man himself, so we'll walk through my walking into Edward's books over the last 27 years or so. And, uh, then look at his life. And then next Sunday we'll focus right in on his engagement with the revivals. There were two major revival seasons. 17, 1734, 35, and 1741, 42, and trailing off into 43. Big awakenings in New England. Edwards was a pastor, theologian who lived from 1703 to 1758. He died when he was not quite 55 years old and is regarded by many as the most powerful preacher and theologian and some would say even philosopher that America has ever produced. But let me save his life uh, till the end of our time this morning and begin by introducing you to his thought. And, and the, re- the reason I spend the whole Sunday here on uh, what you might call non-revivalistic Edwards, that is, what did he think, what was his, his framework, is because you, you need to know how God uses different kinds of people. The Edwards that God used was vastly different from the Finney that God used or the Moody that God used. Vastly different. We must never stereotype the kind of person God might be pleased to make the instrument of awakening. Never. Because the history of the church simply puts that to naught. You can't do it. So you need to meet this amazingly intellectual man Jonathan Edwards in his pastoral labors so that you can avoid stereotyping the kind of people that might be used of God for remarkable revivalistic fervor. And then next Sunday, we'll tackle his specifically revivalistic writings, the events surrounding those revivals, the controversies that emerged. If you want to be reading, I don't know what inclinations you have in this regard, but let me just show you some places to begin. This is the best biography, I believe. I've read, I think, five. And uh, Jonathan Edwards, a new biography by Ian Murray. This is the one we carry in our bookstore. And if they're not there, we'll be getting some more. This is accessible. You don't have to be a trained theologian or have seminary background in order to benefit from this book. This is the biography of Edwards, and it's rich with uh, practical personal implication for our lives. And I recommend it to all of you. If you want to go deeper and have most of what's published, these are the two volumes that Banner of Truth Trust puts out. And uh, most of the works that I'll be referring to this morning are in here. Little tiny two-column print. You have to have high motivation to work your way through sermons and uh, texts in here. But you could do what I did years ago, and and I may still do it again. Um, Set myself 15 minutes a day. Just 15 minutes a day, and when they're done, I stop and do that religiously six days a week. And you'll be amazed how much you can read in six months or a year. Huge amounts that, if you're a non-reader, you would be able to read. And then I've got a stack of books here, but I want to get to these as I came to them in my own pilgrimage with with Edwards. When I was in seminary, 1968 to 1971... A teacher, Lewis Smeads, in ethics, uh, recommended something that really lodged in my heart. He said, I recommend to all of you young seminarians that in, in addition to all your broad reading, you pick one great theologian. Great meaning someone whom the church over centuries, has proved to be fruitful to engage with. Not somebody who appeared on the scene for a decade or 50 years and then disappeared. But somebody whom the centuries has validated as ongoingly fruitful for dialogue in the church. You know, people like Augustine and Calvin and Luther and Edwards. And uh, I fell toward into and embraced Jonathan Edwards. as that person for me. So I've read more of Edwards than I've read of any other uh person living or dead outside the Bible. In fact I've probably no that's kind of I was going to say I've read more of Edwards than the Bible, but I, I don't know. I have to count pages and words and see how long the Bible is. And, but anyway, you need to know that Edwards exerts a massive influence on my life. As a a dead teacher, I distinguish those who are living and those who are dead as my teachers, and he is the most important dead teacher outside the Bible. So as I walk through this, you'll be hearing echoes of how I got to be the way I am, and that's for good or ill, according to your interpretation of Scripture. The first encounter with Edwards was in high school, of course, as it was with most of you where they take a little excerpt in your literature book and they call it uh, Typical Puritan and they give you about a page's worth of sinners in the hands of an angry God, And they quote, He abhors sinners holding them over hell like a spider on a thread over a fire. Which, in the context of that sermon, is a true statement, I believe. And if you put it over against his majestic vision of grace in heaven, it enhances your love. But that's where most people end. That's Sidvers. He was a fiery, hell-fired, brimstone preacher in New England and uh, has nothing to do with contemporary life, and he can be laid aside. My real encounter came in uh, 1968 or 9, I can't remember the year, when I first read Essay on the Trinity, which is in this little book here, Treatise on Grace and Other Writings, Observations on the Trinity, and then at the very end, Essay on the Trinity. just a little short book on the Trinity, I mean a little short essay, 30 pages at the back. That was my next exposure, and I knew I was in for something very different than what they had said in the high school literature textbooks. The impact of that little book on the Trinity was, number one, to give me a conceptual framework of the Trinity that I've never, ever seen before. And I'm tempted to go into it right now, although seeing what I've got to cover here and knowing how much time, we're going to resist it. You've heard it as I've spoken of the Trinity before with beholding His Son, as the perfect embodiment of his own idea or vision of himself and therefore the son is God reflected back to God and the person in his own right and the Holy Spirit is the energy and love of God flowing back and carrying so much of the son and the father back and forth in love that he stands forth as the embodiment of all that God is in the love that he has for his son; and therefore, God has been a holy, happy, all-sufficient, trinitarian community from all eternity. This glorious vision that is so much above Allah in His solitude. But probably more important than that was the whole. You know, when you're when you're twenty two, three, four years old and you're trying to figure out how to read scripture and how to think about thinking and the role of mystery. The effect of that book was to cause me to come to a conclusion that I've never changed, namely that God is great above all of our thinking, but he is mainly worshipped because of what we know of him, not what we don't know of him. It it was remarkable to me then and it is remarkable to me now how many people revel in what they don't know of God, as though that mystery were the rock-solid basis of worship, and the less I know of God's mystery, the more I get excited about God, there's something profoundly wrong. Now that does not mean there's nothing we don't know. You see, when, you came, when I came to the end of this this essay on the Trinity, I read, "I am sensible what kind of objections may many will be ready to make against what has been said, what difficulties will be immediately found, and how can this be, and how can that be?" And I am far from affording this as any explication of this mystery that unfolds and renews the mysteriousness and incomprehensibleness of it. For I am sensible that, however, by what has been said, some difficulties are lessened, others are new and appear. And the number of those things that appear mysterious, wonderful, and incomprehensible is increased by it. I offer it only as a farther manifestation of what the divine truth of the word of God exhibits to the view of our minds concerning this great mystery. In other words, Edward says, there is more in the Holy Scriptures concerning God than we ever dreamed. And once you devote a life to seeing the God revealed in Scripture, you will not come to the end of your life thinking you have exhausted him, but marveling both at what you have known, mainly, and standing in awe of what you don't know. And I remember in those days, this image came to my mind, and I've used it over and over again. i got this in seminary, and I, I've mentioned it in various services. I think all of eternity, beginning right now in this world, is like mountain climbing in the alps of the glory of God. And you look up, In the mountain ranges of the glory of God and you see a peak and you devote yourself to climbing. Meditation, prayer, study, obedience, worship, fellowship. And you move up, up, 20, 10, 15, 20 years and you're approaching the peak of this sight that you've got. Of the glory of His holiness, of the glory of His mercy. And you come to the top when you're 49 years old maybe and you grab the top and you pull up over And there falls away before you a huge, endless ravine of glacier ice rising up into another peak that disappears into the cloud. And in a thousand years or so, you climb that one. And with your growing understanding of His glory and His grace, pull yourself over that edge with the exhilaration of accomplishment and fulfillment, and there falls away before you another vast array of beauty and mountain ranges upon mountain ranges rising up into endless skies. And we will spend all eternity growing in our understanding of God. I remember as a little child in my foolishness, Heaven appeared boring to me for various reasons. Silver streets and fountains and and harps never moved me as a kid. Grass did, trees did, dogs did, football did. But those kinds of crystalline images never helped me. But another reason I was bored is because I thought, well, once you get to heaven, you know even as you are known. 1 Corinthians 13, and therefore we know everything to known, and it's finished and you can't learn anymore. And learning is part of the joy of being finite under an infinite God. And now I know better. And Edward showed that to me. He showed it there. And he showed it in numerous places. God is beyond comprehension and will always be beyond comprehension. But our worship rests on what? we know make. And it is fear and wonder and all and power about what we don't yet know. That was the essay on the Trinity back in 1968 or 9. The next book I encountered was Freedom of the Will. This is probably the hardest book and probably I don't know, the most important maybe, that he wrote the Freedom of the Will. Now Edwards is a Calvinist. Here's what he says about that. I should not take it at all amiss to be called a Calvinist for distinction's sake, though I utterly disclaim a dependence on Calvin or believing the doctrines which I hold because he believed them and taught them and cannot justly be charged with believing in everything just as he taught That's exactly the way I would describe my Calvinism. I hope, I hope and pray and still lay myself open to the test that my Calvinism is rooted not in Calvin or in anybody's book except Paul's Matthew's Mark Luke John Peter James and the Old Testament now this book is written about is the will free as Arminians define freedom or not. And he devotes his whole effort, this is a, this is a digest, it's not the whole thing. The whole thing is in the two volume work here. Here's the thesis, the main point of the book. It goes like this. God's moral government over mankind, his treating them as moral agents, making them the objects of his commands and counsels and calls and warnings and invitations is not Inconsistent with a determining disposal of all events of every kind throughout the universe in his providence either by positive efficiency or by permission. Now that long sentence, let me sum up. What he's saying is, God controls absolutely everything, everywhere, all the time, completely. And that is not inconsistent with God telling you to do one thing or not another, and holding you blameworthy if you do the wrong thing. And you, if you sit there and say that is absolutely impossible for those two things to be true, here's what I suggest to you. Realize that your conclusion, that those two things, God's absolute sovereignty and control of all things, and his commanding faith and sentencing unbelief as blameworthy. If you find those two inconsistent, it is owing to a philosophical presupposition that you agree. It's not owing to the laws of logic. It is owing to this philosophical presupposition. In order for a person to be held accountable, they must have ultimate self-determination. That's the philosophical presupposition that you are bringing to the contradiction that you see. It may not be a contradiction. I would argue profoundly it is not a contradiction. This book was devoted to proving that it is not a contradiction. And the Bible is replete with two things. Everywhere human beings are responsible for their behavior. Everywhere they must do right and not wrong. Everywhere they are accountable before a holy God. Everywhere they will be judged for their unbelief or their misdeeds. That's one thing the Bible is clear on. The Bible is also clear, again and again and again. God reigns over the hearts of human beings. God fashions the hearts. God controls the world. God rules the the hurricanes. Noel and I and the boys sat through Hurricane Erin in Pensacola, Florida, and uh, I'll tell you more about that maybe tonight. But uh, there's no doubt in my mind who was blowing. I was praying like crazy for the Oslo's sale yesterday. And I didn't want it to rain. And on Friday, I didn't want it to rain. God don't let it rain on their sale. They need money to go to the mission field. And it rained. You think Satan took over the world? Those two things are both true. And uh, if you can't figure it out, that's okay. okay. That's okay. We don't have to have it figured out at Bethlehem. You don't have to even agree with me on that at Bethlehem. Is that clear? You do not have to agree with Edwards on that point. There are longstanding standing views in the evangelical church that have different solutions than Edwards. For example, Finney, Charles Finney, mightily, I believe, used of God in the second awakening in this land and he wrote this about this book here he is Finney was born in uh, 1792 that's what 40, 40 some years after uh, Edwards died and uh, Charles Finney when he wanted to attack Calvinism didn't choose anybody who was his contemporary he chose this book Because still, in his day, this book was used in all the seminaries to defend Calvinism. Here's what he wrote. Ridiculous. That's his first word. Ridiculous. Edwards I revere. His blunders I deplore. I speak thus of this treatise on the will. Because while it abounds with uh, unwarrantable assumptions distinctions without difference, metaphysical subtleties. It has been adopted as the textbook of a multitude of what are called Calvinistic divines for scores of years. And he attempted, therefore, in his systematic theology to devastate Edwards. And you must then decide, did he succeed, so that you will trumpet the view of free will that Finney propounded or that Edwards propounded. But God used Finney and God used Edwards. Let me tell you something I heard on the tape the, just the other day, two days ago I think it was. It was Errol Holtz, Calvinistic Baptist pastor in England talking about the Trinity and uh, the Holy Spirit in particular and he raised the question why the assemblies of God are so marvelously fruitful around the world. When the Assemblies of God confessionally are anti-Calvinistic. Now, if God's a Calvinist. Why does he do this? Here's what Errol Holt said. He said, we have a baseball in a baseball game in Britain and it's not your baseball who's speaking to Americans. If we miss the ball, we're out. You spend a long time trying to hit the ball. I think you're talking about cricket. And uh he said, You can have a crooked bat or a straight back. The difference is what you do with your back. If you have a crooked bat and you hit the ball better, you'll get more runs than if you have a straight bat and miss the ball with And then he said, I think I think it's always have a crooked back have a crooked back. There are parts of it that are skewed in their view of the sovereignty of God. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, they wield their back in reliance on God and with fervor and faith that God honors better than many of us Calvinists who come straight back on this issue or that issue. That's a helpful, that's a helpful picture of why God blesses. J.I. Packer put it like this, God loves to honor the needle of truth in a haystack of error. You, you go all over the city right now today, and you will find dozens of theological orientations. Nuances here, nuances there, nobody saying it's quite the same. And God, the sovereign Holy Spirit, is bringing people to himself all over the place. Don't let that make you indifferent to doctrine. Don't let that make you indifferent to doctrine. Um, that was the second one. Then, Noel and I finished seminary and headed to, uh, Barnesville, Georgia. We were in Pasadena, California, in Fuller, where I read those two books, the Essay on the Trinity and Freedom of Will. And we packed up our belongings, drove across, came down through, uh, say, Right, and uh, wound up in the uh, summer of 71 in Barnesville, Georgia, where we just spent four weeks. And uh, one afternoon, I went out in the car where they have they had in 1971 a swing, two-person swing hanging on a chain, which is still there, sat in it, closed my eyes, took myself back 24 years again. And uh, on that swing, I read this book, The Nature of True Virtue. Surrounded by trees and beautiful Georgia woods. And uh, this book, (laughs) many would say, is is, uh, a naked idea. But uh, Perry Miller said this book comes as close as any book he's ever read to a naked idea. Meaning, I think, unclothed with illustration or... Flesh and blood, and trees and dogs and fleas and ticks and you know, just real life diapers and dirty dishes and dust and just a naked idea, naked idea, and uh, it had a very, very, very powerful effect on me. Listen to this: He argues that goodness resolves into beauty. If you press it and say, What is goodness? What is goodness? What is goodness in God? What is goodness? Define goodness. Edward said, uh, Goodness or virtue is a certain kind of beautiful nature, form, or quality. It, it results into an aesthetic category of moral beauty. And if you say, what, What's that? What's that? Well, where do you go? Where do you stop when people press you to define? How far back can you go? Where do you stop? And ultimately you have to stop somewhere and you're defining the thing. You can't keep defining the thing you've just defined. You can't. You just have to. Ultimately we are shut up to point you. Which leads to this. The manner of being Affected with the, affected with the immediate presence of the beautiful idea depends not on any reasonings about the idea after we have it, before we find out whether it be beautiful or not, but on the frame of our minds whereby they are so made that such an idea, as soon as we have it, is grateful or Beautiful to the mind. I see I put that in my own words. This is very profound for evangelism and for why you became a Christian and for how you can commend Christ. What he's saying is let me, let me put a biblical verse on this so it sounds biblical to you, not philosophical. Second Corinthians four, four. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing. Now get this next verse. Seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The light, light of the gospel preached. Jesus came, died for sinners, was buried, rose again, triumphed over death and hell and reigned his coming. The light of the gospel of the glory, beauty, Goodness, virtue, glory. How do you find glory? The glory of Christ who is God imaged for. Satan is blinding minds from not seeing that. Successful evangelism is when gospel is articulated, light shines, Holy Spirit lifts blindness. And you, and you know what happens at that moment? Edward says It is not owing to a long series of reasonings that a person at that moment says, Ah, this is true, that is true, that is true, and therefore 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 this must be true, and therefore I would be Christian. So work toward it that way. Most people, though they can't articulate it, at a moment of crisis, need, and spiritual reality, and gospel witness, and the glory of Christ, suddenly... There is a, it's like a, the mind has been, uh, as a template designed for the glory and the beauty of God, and the crud of the world is filling up these these little cracks where God is supposed to fit. The Holy Spirit is chipping out all this crud through suffering and all kinds of other ways, and, and then you have the template of the human soul clear, and here comes the gospel, and it therefore must be doctrinally articulated with some correctness. It comes... And it fits, and light dawns, light happens in the soul, and the person, verse 6 of that text says, uh, we preach not ourselves, but Christ as Lord. Yeah, thank you. For God said, for the one who said, let light shine out of darkness. In other words, just as God in the beginning, as he looked out upon darkness, said, let there be light, and there was light. He looks into a dark soul, and like he did for Lydia, he says, shine. And the light goes on, Let, and he goes on, uh, he, he shone to give the light of a knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, uh, this is very profound here. This is a heavy, heavy book, but it, it boils down to something incredibly practical. Namely, Human beings are created in the image of God for God. You've never met a person on the street, no matter how drunk, no matter how sin-sick and degenerate, who is made in the image of God for God. Their soul is shaped for God. And you never know... But that when you deliver a word of truth and love into that soul, the Holy Spirit might be pleased to take that word, clean out all the substitute gods, and cause it to fit. And suddenly, light, beauty, glory is apprehended spiritually. Edwards used this illustration. He said, suppose somebody had never tasted anything sweet and never tasted honey, and you found honey. And you, you put a little bit of this old stuff on your neck. You say, like, what? That is good! It's just a brand new taste. That is so good! And you go to the person and say, I found honey. It's good. Believe that it's good. Trust in the goodness of honey. And they would say, I don't know that. Honey, what is honey? Uh, well, it's like, it's like sugar. I don't know sugar. What is sugar? I've not tasted sugar. What is sugar? Well, it's like, it's sweet. <laughs> and if they never tasted sweetness, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Give them some money! <laughs> right? You give them some money. Here, taste this. And they taste it. And ever says, spiritually, there's a glory to be apprehended. There's a glory to be tasted, seen, loved, rested in, satisfied by, and the world doesn't look. They never tasted it, they don't know what you're talking about. So if you try to argue with anything liking it, the arguments can help. they can provide a foundation, they can knock away some objections, but ultimately we are dependent upon the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ shining in the hearts. Let me tell you, l- lest you lest you become passive. And then here, maybe this is one of the reasons Calvinists don't do as well as as assemblies of God. Is because at this moment we so easily make the mistake, well, if so much depends upon God, I guess I don't have to be very aggressive in my evangelism. Don't need to urge people, don't need to wrestle, don't need to cry, don't need to weep, don't need to pray, don't need to pursue. I'm going to talk about this this morning in the sermon and for the next three weeks and tonight as well and tell you an experience I had in my front yard last night. Did you see those police guards out there last night, Rod? I'll tell you about it. Uh, very significant experience for me personally last night in my, in my front yard. Okay. That was Georgia, 1971, Nature of True Virtue. When I was done, by the way, just to show you, uh, you need to know how odd I am. Um... I, when I was done with this naked idea called Nature of True Virtue and I was sitting there swinging, I can remember this like it was yesterday. I took out a pencil and paper and I wrote this poem, this poem called Georgia Woods. Let this green press through your eyes upon the softness of your mind and with a moment's thought dissolve, let it trickle down, down to the center of your heart and in a moment's joy the faint green vapor form and feel it spread, spread, spread. What that got to do with virtue? The effect it has on me is that when I, when I encounter something this profound, this deep, it just seems to make me see poems everywhere. You know, when you meet God, when you feel deep, when you move profoundly, you, you can write poems about a backbone, precious people, you just don't see any, anything you say. Germany, 1971, 2, 3. Noelle and I went to Germany to study, and Noelle and I sat on our little couch in the, in the room in our flat at Simon and read together out loud this book, Charity and Its Fruits by Jonathan Edwards. This is an exposition of 1 Corinthians 13. It's about 13 sermons, I don't know how many it is. Um, This book is not included in the two-volume work. 16 sermons, 360 pages on 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And we read it out loud to each other. I would read a few minutes, you read a few minutes. And we both agreed it's very verbose. Edwards is, is verbose, it's not easy to read. And we both agreed it was very precious, very, very powerful to beget a stirring up of love in our, in our lives. One of the things the book did for me was help me in my emerging Christian hedonism. Edwards, I am arguing in what I write, is a Christian hedonist. That is, he really believes that you should live your life to maximize your joy, in God, and that God is glorified when you do that. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him, is a Edwardsian sentence. I didn't come up with this vision on my own. I am in a long stream of tradition that goes back to Augustine, and I believe the Apostle Paul, and Moses, and Isaiah, and David. But in that book, he takes this sentence in First Corinthians 13, Love seeks not its own, which is a problem text. If you believe you should seek your own glory, all the time. I mean your own. That's it. Seek your own joy. God gives the glory. You give the joy. Seek your own joy all the time. And his answer was, take a minute just to read. He said, the charity or the spirit of Christian love is not contrary to all self-love. It is not a thing contrary to Christianity that a man should love himself or, which is the same thing, love his own happiness. If Christianity did indeed tend to destroy a man's love to himself and to his own happiness, it would therein destroy the very spirit of humanity. But the very announcement of the gospel as a system of peace on earth and goodwill toward men shows that it is not only not destructive of humanity, but in the highest degree promotive of its spirit. That a man should love his own happiness is as necessary to his nature as the faculty of his will is. And it is impossible that such a love should be destroyed in any other way than by destroying his being. The saints love their own happiness. Yea, those that are perfect in happiness, the saints and angels in heaven, love their own happiness. Otherwise, that happiness which God hath given them would be no happiness to them... For that which anyone does not love, he cannot enjoy any happiness in. In other words, you would dishonor God if he offers you the happiness of joy that peace in himself, and you turned away and said, I'm not supposed to be happy. I'm a duty person. This book, as well as everything else Edwards wrote, helped me tremendously in that regard. Next, there was a little a little pantry. They called it, I think, a cool a cell. Off the kitchen, it was about eight feet long this way, with a little vertical window, and about five feet this way, and I put a desk in there, and a bookshelf, and that's where I lived for three years, working on my doctorate in Germany. And that became a vestibule of heaven. Morning. And uh, one of the accompaniments there was this book. This is the uh, Photograph form that I bought at Fuller Seminary bookstore and didn't read until I got over the call. Dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world. Dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world. Why did God create the world is what he's trying to answer and he, he answers by saying he created it for his glory. Now here's a paragraph. This is probably the most important paragraph for me in this book. And you will hear, I think if you listen carefully, so much of John Piper that you will uh, begin to go back to the source, I hope, rather than thinking that I am very original. It appears that all that is ever spoken of in Scripture as an ultimate end for God's works is included in the one phrase, the glory of God. In the creatures knowing, esteeming, loving, rejoicing in and praising god the glory of god is both exhibited and acknowledged his fullness is received and returned here is both the emanation and remission the refulgence shines upon and into the creature and is reflected back to the luminary The beams of glory come from God and are something of God and are refunded back again to the original so that the whole is of God and in God and to God and God is the beginning and middle and end in this affair. That's what I want to live for. I want to devote my life to the centrality and supremacy of God. Because when I met that in Jonathan Edwards, my life was so changed. And I can testify over 20 years or so of how many lives are changed when they encounter the centrality and the supremacy of God. But notice, notice the key. Let me see if I can boil it down. God's glory shines forth like light refulgent from his holiness It is known, esteemed, loved, and rejoiced in. And that rejoicing in is a reflection back to him of the glory we received from him. So that those who are most satisfied in him make him to appear most glorious. That's Christian hedonism. That's my life. That's my theology. And revival is the awakening of that joy. And Edwards got into tremendous trouble in the 1730s and 1740s because he worked to kindle joy. And the staid and proper congregationalists in Boston like Charles Chauncey got on his case as a fanatic and an emotional person and one who was stirring up trouble, swooning and falling down and all kinds of crazy things, And he wrote two books to defend the whole thing, which we'll talk about next week. But I want you to see that right at the heart of theology is emotion. And the danger of emotionalism, which is emotion without thought, is built right into reality. The danger of it. Not the reality of it, but the danger of it. And therefore, when you look around the revival scene today and you see excesses of emotion, you must not conclude that there is a false root here. There may be just an oddly twisted branch on a very appropriately rooted reality. A very God-centered thing might be going on when there's exuberance and explosive joy in what is revealed of the glory of God. And knowing my own heart and its incredible sin and finitude and limitations of sight, it's not surprising to me that if I were to be gripped by that kind of explosive fervor, it would have some odd manifestations. I, generally, generally, I say when I get excited, I say inappropriate things. <laughs> yeah, you, you know that, right? You know that. You can remember a few of them.
1: And I did it. I did it in
0: Hudson last week when I was. I I, I won't quote it because then I would repeat the same defamation that I did But I was I was getting all excited about the sufficiency of the scriptures, and I said something about certain crazies in the world, and I. I didn't name anybody, I was like, those crazies who, boom. And as soon as I said it, I went like this. Now I shouldn't have said it. I shouldn't have said Scratch that, and Tate. The point is, I've been a Christian for 43 or two years, and I've been a pastor for 15 years, and I've been a teacher for 6 years longer than that. And if I, saturated with theology, and an analytical thinker, I cannot control this. But in my exuberance about good things, saying ill-advised things, should we expect that it would be any different? Anywhere else? Well, I'm getting into next week, and that shouldn't be so far ahead. Um, the, the next thing I read in German, one other thing, besides Ex- biographies, I'm leaving biographies out. I read, and I brought it along. This, this, this whole book. Mm. This is dated 1796. So this book next year will be, this actual piece of paper will be 200 years old next year. And I, uh, I, it's not an original, it's not a first edition or anything like that, it's just old. And it smells, mmm, if you remember the it, smell it. 1972 and What I did was I took this book. This is Treatise Concerning the Religious Affections. Now this is in paperback, and I hope in our bookstore. And people ask
1: me, where should I
0: begin reading Jonathan Edwards? And I always say, begin with this. Begin with this. Treatise Concerning the Religious Affections. This is Jonathan Edwards' mature response to the revival. He was preaching these sermons, these were sermons in 1940, I keep saying 19, 1742, 43 as he was writing thoughts concerning the revival. Talk about next week. What was that? 17. Published in 1746, after the revival fervor was starting to die down, this is his mature effort to discern wheat and chaff in the revival explosion. How do you recognize true, true grace in the heart? If somebody falls down, or somebody trembles, or somebody shrieks, what's a God? What's a God? How do you tell that? That's what this book is about. How do you tell true grace in the heart? And therefore, this is an incredibly relevant book, and I believe today, and its relevance is going to increase and increase increase in the years to come. It isn't necessarily easy reading, but it is rich, rich reading. And the way I read it, so just to encourage some of you non-readers, I am a slow reader. I read slower than most of you in this room, and therefore I don't read a lot, I read carefully to make up for my slowness. What I did was, we, they didn't have Sunday evening services in German church. We were going to German Baptist church and they had Sunday evening service. So, Noel and I, home alone, Sunday night, I would sit in a rocking chair, same black rocking chair that I was in right now where Noel nursed our first son, and I would sit there when she wasn't there, and, and I would read for probably a half an hour, and that would be probably fifteen pages maybe, or ten, just slow reading, just meditating over these pages. And the Lord was convicted. He talked about relentless repentance and conviction, about lukewarmness. About what the heart, seeing God, should do in response to God. The heart should do. The heart should do. Before the body does anything, what should the heart do? That's what this book is about. Heart religion. Just a little excerpt here. This is a description. This is the kind of thing, when Edward gets on a roll, he's best at. Describing true grace in the human heart. This is a person who is truly gracious. The less apt he is to be afraid of natural evil, having his heart fixed, trusting in God, and so not afraid of evil tidings, the more apt he is to be alarmed with the appearance of moral evil or the evil of sin. As he has more holy boldness, so he has less of self-confidence and a forward-assuming boldness and, a, and more modesty. As he is more sure than others of deliverance from hell, so he has more of a sense of the desert of it. He is less apt than others to be shaken in faith, but more apt than others to be moved with solemn warnings and with God's frowns and with the calamities of others. He has the firmest comfort, but the softest heart. Richer than others, but poorest of all in spirit. The tallest and strongest saint, but the least and tenderest child among them. There are many passages of that kind of beauty and paradox in Edwards that we have yet to live up to. Well, the readings went on. I, I could list other works of his, but you can, you can find them. Let me close by a quick summary of his life. And then we jump into the revival parts next Sunday. 1703, he's born in Windsor, Connecticut. His father was Timothy Edwards and he was a pastor. Born into a pastor's home. The the only son with ten sisters. And his father used to lament that he had been given 60 feet of daughters and one little boy. He taught him Latin when he was six. At 14... Now this is amazing... um, at 12, he went to Yale, and when he was 14, he read Essay on Human Understanding by John Locke, Philosophical Treatise. Now, I, the reason this sticks out to me is because I took—I was a philosophy minor at Wheaton, and I took 15 hours worth of philosophy, and, and I read Essay on the Understanding by John Locke. 14! <laughs> give me a break. I can't believe that he read this when he was 14. 14, and this is what he said. I got more pleasure out of it than the most greedy miser finds when gathering up handfuls of silver and gold from some newly discovered treasure. So he was very strange. <laughs> very different kind of human being at 14. Nobody will be like Edwards or or most of the other amazing people in history. At, at, in 1720... Uh, He graduated from Yale, he's 17 years old, he gave the valedictory address in Latin, and then stayed on two more years to get his M.A., and then he became a pastor in New York for eight months in a Presbyterian church, and then decided to go back and be a tutor at Yale for a little while, and there he fell in love with Sarah pierre Pont. And I've got this juicy quote about how he fell in love, written inside of his Greek New Testament. And I wrote in the margin, let Noel have this one. So Noel will read it in two weeks. So you can hear it. She's going to talk about Sarah and their relationship and what happened with, with them. So they got married four years later. And uh, he became the pastor at the Northampton Church, the Congregational Church in Northampton, uh, when he was, what, 20... I'll get my figures out here. At any rate, uh, he came to pastor four years later, it doesn't matter. And he was pastor for 23 years and after 23 years they voted him out of his church. Now, uh, that was, he was 30, so he died when he was 54 and he was 8 years after that, so what's 54 minus 8? 46? So he's 46 years old, 3 years younger than I am when he voted out of his church after 23 years. There were several reasons. One, he made a terrible pastoral blunder Three, several years earlier because there were, now picture this, the kinds of things you can get in trouble for as a pastor. I think I've probably done worse than this. Uh, There was a, a group of teenagers who were passing around the best thing they had for pornography, namely a midwifery man. And uh, it came to the attention of the pastor that the teenagers were into pornography. And so, he stands up on Sunday morning, and he reads a list of kids that are to meet him in his church, his house, that afternoon. And he includes in the list both the culprits and the names of those who identified them with no distinction. And the parents just hit the roof. And that was never forgotten. That he insensitively lumped the good kids and the pornographic kids in one list for all 600 people that gathered in his church and didn't make any distinction. (laughs) Now that kind of simmered there. The theological reason why they booted him is that his grandfather, who had been 60 years the pastor of this church before he he came, Solomon Stoddard, had taught that the communion table was a converting ordinance And therefore, anyone without discrimination could eat at the communion table. Edward studied, thought, and wrestled and came to the biblical conclusion, that is not right. And he wrote a book. He wrote a book against his grandfather and defended that only those who give evidence of conversion should be admitted to the Lord's table. And it caused such a controversy that they... They put him out of his church. The next eight years, he spent as a missionary to the Indians in a little church uh, in Stockbridge uh, to the west. And then, when he was 54 years old, he was called by Princeton Seminary, Princeton College in those days, Princeton College, to be the president of the school. And he didn't want to go. And his counselors around him put upon him to go, and he wept because he said, I'm so much into my studies. He wrote the freedom of the will, the end for which God created the world, and original sin and the nature of true virtue, all in the wilderness while he was missionary to the Indians. And he said, I'm so much into these studies, I can't bring myself to put myself into a position where I can't continue my studies. And they prevailed upon him, and he yielded. On February 13, 1758, he agreed to submit himself to an experimental smallpox inoculation. And, it back up. and the pustules in his throat got so big that he couldn't take fluid anymore and he became dehydrated and they knew he was going to die at 54 years old at the beginning of his presidency he'd been there one month and uh, there's a magnificent quote of how his wife handled this he had 11 children uh, and I'll let that one for Noel but I'll close with this one this is what he, he spoke to his daughter Lucy as he was dying. Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore give my kindest love to my dear wife. She had not yet moved to Princeton. She was still back at Stockbridge. Give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union, that's the name of the biography that Elizabeth Dodds wrote about their marriage, that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. And as to my children, you are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you. To seek a father who will never fail you. None of his children, Noel will have shared more about this, none of his children forsook the Lord. And the legacy that he left as a family was remarkable as well as the legacy he left in the revival and in theology. I need to run because I've got a baby dedication to meet with parents with. But we'll stop here. We'll pick it up next time. Let me pray with you and then Tim can come close however he wants to. And Noel, uh, would you get my books here for me and we'll put our together Lord, thank you so much for Jonathan Edwards. and Thank you for his God, yourself. Thank you for Jesus who loved us. Thank you for his writing and his sacrifice. We even thank you for your tolerance of his sin and his imperfections. And I ask that we would be shaped into all the goodness of yourself that he saw and be spared from any error that I, or he, has or will ever make. In Jesus' name, amen.